Welcome to the In The Clouds podcast. In The Clouds is a marketing cloud podcast powered by Lev, the most influential marketing-focused Salesforce consultancy in the world. Lev is customer experience obsessed, and podcast hosts Bobby Tishy and Cole Fisher have partnered with some of the world's most well-known brands to help them master meaningful one-on-one connections with their customers. In this podcast, they'll combine strategy and deep technical expertise to share best practices, how-tos, and real-life use cases and solutions for the world's top brands using Salesforce products today. So earlier today, we were talking about our top five sitcoms of all time. Right. What was what was your top five again? Uh well, I, I know I know what you're gonna get at, um, and why it's so difficult to do that. But <laughs> I, I had uh, this is for all timers, so I, I think I had like Seinfeld, The Office, and Boy Meets World were all three locks. And if you're laughing at the last one, Boy Meets World, the writing holds up. It was really witty at the time, still, uh, and and exquisite character selection. So I mean, don't bash until you try it. Give it a shot. It's an old school. Who is your favorite character from Boy Meets World? Uh, so actually it changed um, as the as the seasons progressed. Uh, it started out as like, you know, Sean and Corey were this dynamic duo and they were always funny. And then I think in like the middle school years or so, like Sean got really dramatic and Eric, Corey's brother, took over as the really funny one. So you just kind of had to roll with the punches. You don't ask questions. You just kind of go with the character development as it progresses, you know? Yeah, see, that's a that's the way I like watching TV shows. Although sometimes they, even with the character development, it gets a little, I don't know, a little out there. I I think the, the kind of along that same lines though, and the the topic for today's podcast, which is continuing the in the cognitive clouds, uh, following up on the first episode, which was the law of least effort. Uh, and the title for today's podcast and the main subject is paradox of choice, which is, I, I have the same problem, not only with TV shows of like, you know, you, like I look at Netflix and I have no idea, like I could watch anything. And so that's very intimidating, but I do the same thing with food. Like if my wife and I are going to have food delivered and I'll say, well, sounds good. And she'll say, oh, I don't care. You pick. That's like the worst thing I could possibly hear. (laughs) and then I'll invariably pick like sushi and then she's like really sushi definitely yeah no no matter like that's that's the thing like you have unrestricted you know this this free agency to roam through any choices you can possibly imagine but you're never satisfied with the selection once you make it Netflix free you know food delivered from anywhere the world at our fingertips but now the world's just too much why is that so that is a good segue. Nice job, by the way. Um, <laughs> but, but so obviously we're getting into um, the concept of paradox of choice in this, um, in this episode today. So there's, there's a, a few reasons why it happens. Um, I'll, I'll kind of break it into four um, general concepts. The first is um analysis paralysis and that's that's kind of um the more options you have 
the higher the probability of your one single option with, you know, given the assumption that there is one right choice. Um, the more options you have, the better odds of you having the incorrect choice. So if I have two options, I've got a 50% chance of getting it right, right off the bat. But if I have 100 options, I have a, a given that, that blanket statement of you know, assumption of one correct option, I have a 99% chance of getting it wrong. So um, we'll kind of, let's start with the, the, you know, more world famous case study and anybody that's, you know, been in um, marketing classes or anything like that in the past 20 years has probably come up to this case study. And so um, what it was, and this is about, about 20 years ago, this famous study was done and it was in um, supermarkets. And what they did was they watched customers as they kind of pushed their carts past the end cap of an aisle, um, you know, the end cap kind of being the prize real estate of where you want to um, capture attention for passersby. So initially in the, in the control group, they had eight or they had six different types of jelly. And they watched as this attracted about 40% of shoppers and of those um, total, 30% uh, converted. And so what they did was they said, okay, now let's, let's actually open this up to more uh, different options of jam, more flavors. And so of all these jellies, they actually uh, added 18. So they had 24 different flavors. Now, if you have the original six and you have 18 more, you can only assume, right, that you have better options now. You have as good, if not better choices across the board, and thus the quality is actually improved. And so uh, this is something that we'll, we'll touch on again later, but by all, by all standards, we have better options here. What they noticed was instead of 40% of shoppers being attracted, now 60% of shoppers were attracted. So they saw a 50% increase in uh, impressions as we as marketers would call this. The big problem that they saw was instead of 30% 30, 30 converting, in other words, you know, conversion being taking one of those putting it in their cart and checking out. They now only saw a 3% conversion. So they saw a 50% increase in the impressions, but they saw a tenfold drop in the actual conversions. So, you know, the reason is, you know, one of the big reasons is this analysis paralysis. There's so many options that instead of, you know, having, uh, what basically happened here was I, as the shopper, went from having um, you know, about a 17% chance of choosing the correct flavor. So for me, I can probably you know, easily dictate which, you know, if there are five bad flavors for me, maybe I'm not a marmalade guy, I can write that off. You know, I know I'm not standard grape, let's just go through what I want. One out of six, not too much for me to navigate. But when we added you know, a, a 18 more flavors for 24 total flavors, now I have a 96% chance of choosing incorrectly. And inherently the, the piece in me as, or as, as a human being in my behavior that, that dictates this analysis paralysis is that is this loss aversion, which we touched on last time, but essentially I'd rather make no decision than the wrong decision. And so I'll just kind of up in arms, walk away, and at least I'm not incorrect. Does this play into the our last episode about this of the law of least effort at all, where 
I'm looking at all these flavors and not only do I have a much higher chance of selecting the wrong one, but it's also just like cognitive overload. I can't, it's too much effort to try to go through 24 different flavors to try to find the one that I might like. It is. So like two of the big, like kind of reasons, reasons it happens. So I'll kind of, we'll talk a little bit. There's like four main reasons about what's actually happening, but there's sort of two main reasons about why it's happening. That first one is that loss aversion. And that's that like, I, I'm so afraid to lose that. And uh, there's a lot of studies. A lot of people will say it's, it's a, uh, a twofold, you know, that we're twice as, and it's not really true, but uh, there's some studies that suggest this that we are approximately um, twice as um, uncomfortable losing something than we are gaining something, you know, is, uh, sorry. So we're, we're twice as uncomfortable losing something as we are encouraged by gaining something. Now, nominally speaking, that's not really accurate and it changes based on different scales and, and scenarios, but the, the general concept is loss aversion tells us that we're more afraid of losing than we are encouraged by gaining something. The other big component is, you're right, is cognitive load um, or what a lot, like a lot of people will call like decision fatigue. So I remember this example um, from marketing classes way back in the day, but there's, there's a rule of seven. And so if you said, hey, um, think of, think of as, you know, here's 30 seconds or a minute or something like that. Think of as many brands of chips as you can, or uh, fountain drinks or something like that. Most people, they call it the rule of, rule of seven plus or minus two. Most people will generally fall within five to nine. And I'm talking like well over the 90th percentile. Few people will, will get you know more or less than that. But most of the time we, and this is kind of that top of mind awareness concept that, that marketers are always you know, in the battleground against competitors for you know, their, their industry top of mind, for being a brand that consumers think of first. Because we have a very finite um, bandwidth to really hold these, these names and brands in place. And so the same is true when we're making just general decisions. So we mentioned um, yesterday, or, or, or sorry, not yesterday, but in the last episode, we kind of talked about um, the, the godfather of... Um, neoclassical economics and the concept of high versus low level processing. And um, one of the things that we, that we talked about was how, you know, in, in terms of like that, that ease of processing, you know, the, these are concepts why like Mark Zuckerberg was always wearing hoodies or why um, Steve Jobs was always wearing the same mock turtleneck. Because if, if we eliminate low-level um, mundane processing in law of least effort, we save more bandwidth for higher-level, more complex uh, and strategic decision-making. So this same thing happens with cognitive load is, is there's so much decision here. And what I do instead of like looking at all these 24 different um, jellies and the 96% the chance that I'm going to choose incorrectly, I end up saying like, okay, is this worth all the time and effort for me to figure out what's the right one? Or is there so much here that I should just shut this down and walk away? And again, no decision is better than the wrong decision. And so we're going to tend towards that, you know, via loss, uh, loss aversion and the cognitive load saying, no, these two factors are what's pushing me over the edge to just not make any decision whatsoever.
Do you think it, it could be applied to marketers or technologists or really whoever, but it's the, the concept or the thought that it's much better to focus on a couple of things, uh, especially what you're, what you're good at, right? Rather than trying to, you know, you, you want to go deep into a few topics or a few, a few skills rather than try to go really broad with them. And I think that there's a lot of argument on whether or not, like which, which one is best. And certainly the line of work differs and that sort of thing. But I wonder if there's a correlation here too, where, you know, if you kind of to your point about, you know, Mark Zuckerberg and Steve Jobs wearing the same thing, or, you know, people who, you know, I've heard of Nick Saban, the head coach of Alabama has the same thing for breakfast, lunch, and dinner every single day. It's just less choice. Right. And so if I'm thinking about, well, I'm going to become a expert in Salesforce marketing cloud versus I'm going to become an expert in every single Salesforce product. It's going to take a much longer time and you're, uh, you're probably not as inclined to certain products under the Salesforce umbrella versus if you focused on, on one or two of them to really dive in on, because then you're not having to, this may be a stretch as I'm thinking about it more, but the thought of having a couple of things to really dig deep into versus trying to understand everything a little bit. Yeah. Well, so th that's, it's related in the fact that this, this kind of bandwidth approach, but yeah, there's most empirical evidence will show that like human behavior itself suggests that we always benefit from focusing on our strengths and improving, you know, one or two things that we really uh, have, um, you know, an innate passion and intrinsic drive towards things like that, that we've identified that, that we're a already good at, uh, and B, that we're motivated to perform at. Whereas those who put in, you know, if you could, if you could spend a hundred hours um, doing something, learning something, perfecting something, if you chose something that you're already strong at, uh, the output will be better than something if I put a hundred hours in something that I'm not good at. And you know, I, I would not see as much of a payoff for my time. So yes, to your point, focusing on something that you're, that you're very good at or something that you're inclined towards, you'll see more of a payoff for the amount of time that you actually expend the investment time than you would if something that you're average at or something that is, um, you know, this is just, you're just not as naturally talented at. Um, yeah, typically we're going to see far lower return on on time like that um which from what you were saying really kind of plays into and that's what i love about all this stuff is it kind of all intertwines together is that it ties into the law of least effort right like i could for example um learn an additional product under something that i already know and pick it up much quicker than if i'm picking up a brand new product yeah and the value of that is going to be much higher because not only because it's specific to that skill that I have, but it's also going to take much less time. Exactly. And, and that's another thing too, is like as, as a customer, when we're interpreting messages from marketers, we have that, that same tendency to say, okay, well, I need to bucket this within a couple of things as opposed to, you know, those, those certain brands that they just do so much 
that we as a customer, we, we have a hard time really encapsulating everything that that brand really does. And so, you know, you've always found a brand as well, like that, that you've, I knew brand X as, you know, this like uh, CPG company or really leading in this certain space. And then I find out there's 12 other things they also do. Well, the, the reason we're surprised by that a lot of times as consumers is because we, we A, don't have the, you know, end-to-end -end explanation of what they do, but B, we need to, you know, for our own simplicity's sake, hang a hat and say, this is what they do. This is, this is what I understand, and I don't need to invest more time, consideration, or cognitive effort into understanding that. And so a lot of times as marketers, when we say, like, our product is this, it's able to do that, we do X, Y, and Z, we have all these other products, we do convolute that message to consumers and Therefore, we get less return on our marketing messaging just from that general concept alone. Well, I think this, as we think about the practical side of this with marketers and technology, there's two examples or concepts that really stand out to me. One is preference centers. Uh, you know, there's a, a lot of different preference centers out there. And I think that, you know, again, kind of combining the concepts of law of least effort and paradox of choice. I typically am not going to go to a preference center unless I am a huge fan of that brand. And I'm going to take the time to actually think about what different messages I'm getting from them. And I, I either really like some of their messaging um, and I'm curious about what else they have, or I, I don't like certain parts of their messaging. So I'm going to unsubscribe from those, but I want to keep in some of the other ones. But the, uh, the, the common, I think, misconception or discussion about preference centers specifically is you, know, you probably really shouldn't be investing a whole lot of time in a preference center if your unsubscribe rate is low. So if it's less than one and a half percent, don't even think about it, right? Just, you know, put something out there, make sure it's can spam compliant. Don't spend too much time or effort, you know, in designing something or trying to manage these different types of newsletters that may or may not be providing value. If your unsubscribe rate is low, most likely your audience is really happy with your content, right? So it doesn't make a whole lot of time to, or it doesn't make a lot of sense to spend diving into it. However, if you're going to, then don't have 300 different options of the different campaigns that you could provide someone. And there, there are some brands in some sectors that there are, there are certain caveats to it for sure. But for example, when I uh, uh, subscribe to Dick's Sporting Goods, I don't want to go to their preference center and see all these different options of, are you interested in our weekly emails? Are you interested in sales emails? Are you interested in new drops? And if you are interested in new drops, what brands are you interested in? Like there's just so many different choices that I then have to make that I just end up abandoning the entire process. Yeah. And, and the, the funny thing is like abandonment is one thing. And that's as marketers, that's all, all we look at. Or that's that's the, the thing that is most uh, endemic to the problem. The thing that's the most the biggest indicator to us is like, oh, we've got all these impressions. And think about it too. I mean, think about the the end cap of jellies, and you know, the four times as many options now, and fifty percent more impressions with tenfold the drop in conversions. Like that becomes very costly to marketers, but. The other things that, that actually happen are not just this analysis paralysis and you know, loss averse decision to just make no decision, 
but you know, so we see lower conversions and that's just the general concept that more is not always better. Um, but, you know, conversions aren't necessarily just purchases. It's just general satisfaction, ratings, reviews, things like that is where we also see this come, come to fruition, but we as marketers don't connect the two end to end all the time. So less satisfaction is another like, basically uh, a telltale sign that paradox of choice is occurring. And so what's, what's occurring is the end user is saying, well, here's the aggregate opportunity cost. Not only do I have 23 different flavors of jelly that are wrong for me, but that's 23 different flavors that I can't try. I don't understand. I don't know. That makes me uneasy. But now I also have to say the more time I've spent on this, and this is with most decisions human beings will respond this way. The more time and expenditure of energy that I have invested in this decision, the increased expectations I have for the result of my decision. So I expect higher ROI because I've spent more time, cognitive load, effort uh, on this decision. And you basically, you raise the bar without actually having raised any product. You didn't improve the product, you just improved, you just convoluted the process and now we have a raised bar for the expectation and so what happens is remember we we, we discussed cognitive dissonance in the last episode and um, there's a component to that called counterfactual thinking and what counterfactual thinking is kind of examining not what you did but what you didn't do and so upward counterfactual thinking in this regard is that that what if effect that's saying that you know I could have had all these other decisions. I could have had this one. I could have had this um, alternate product, something like that. And one of the funny things that's really counterintuitive to us as marketers is the concept of like a return um, or um, like some sort of like money back guarantee or some sort of out that allows us as a consumer to quote unquote, feel better about our decision. But what most studies will show is that people that have that out are less satisfied with their decision. So, and there's, there've been numerous studies like this done, but they'll have product A and they'll expose it to the control group and say, you know, how, go through the process, check out how was your experience with product A. They'll have the exact same thing with product A in a in a, um, an experiment group in this, and they'll say throughout this process, if you don't like it, you can have your money back. What they'll find is they may have no difference in the actual return rate, but those that actually had the option to return it have a lower satisfaction than those that didn't. Oh, that's interesting. Yeah, it's very counterintuitive. We wouldn't, we wouldn't imagine that happens. But what's, what's occurring is that upward counterfactual thinking is like, well, what if, you know, I could, I could, so I'm still, I'm still applying effort. I'm still applying that expenditure of time and energy after the conversion, whereas the conversion now is not absolute for me. So I'm still weighing, am I, is this working? Am I, you know, it, should I return it? Is it okay? Should I not have made this decision at all? And now that tends to weigh on us more than if this was just an absolute conversion and it's done and we can be satisfied with it. The other thing that, I think about along the same lines, because I think that one thing you mentioned earlier kind of comes to the thought of 
you know, the more time you spend on something, the more invested you are in it, the more you think the return should be higher. And I think that another practical example of this for marketers and technology is uh, whether it's um, product or content or web personalization, you know, trying to figure out what the next best action is or the next best step is for that particular consumer. And one reason why I do like next best action, specifically when we're thinking about consumer related products is it's, it's based on my history, not only what I've looked at, but what I've purchased and giving me recommendations based off of that, which makes it very easy to say, you know, if there's, if there's three options at the top, I can say, oh, those are great. Or, you know, I, I like that one, or I'm not interested in them. And I just kind of keep going on, but it's at least providing me something that I didn't have to do any work for, which is something I really like. What I don't like, and maybe, and this is kind of along the same lines of paradox of choice, is when I'm given too many options, right? It's just like the jelly. If I get an email from a shoe brand that has 18 different pairs of shoes in it that I might like, it's like too much. It's, it's, it's content overload. So it's, um, it's really interesting to think about the different types of content recommendations or product recommendations and how AI is being used to, to hopefully do a better job of providing that choice. Yeah, for sure. And, and you know, and I love the, the consummate feedback loop that we as, as marketers, or at least we, we hope or imply that, that we should be doing. But this is one of those things, especially to your point, like content and product recommendations, where I always, we always encourage marketers to say, there's a, there's a fine line between what you can be doing versus what you should be doing. And a lot of the times, this is one of the, the biggest errors that, that we see in product and content recommendations. And, and people, I mean, like we get involved in AI and ML, and we love the recommendation engine, and we love that automated hands-off approach to, um, you know, providing a less, you know, a, a more frictionless checkout and, uh, you know, an easier uh, customer experience and leveraging propensities and affinities to really dial in on something great. And a lot of times uh, brands are doing really well at it, but a lot of the times we get a hold of something that we, we can do and we don't ask ourselves, should we be doing this? And that's the big example. The glaring example for me is like the number of recs, uh, you know, product recommendations throughout the process. The goal is to make a frictionless conversion process. And what you're actually doing a lot of the times is the marketer is operating on this assumption that the customer life cycle is linear, which is anything we in inherently do know, it's that it's not linear. And people can dodge from one stage to another. And, you know, we, we try to put this, you know, linear progression of customer life cycle, like we see in a textbook. And we try to kind of project that onto our customers, say like, this would be at least an ideal process. And most of the time it's, it's relatively close. Um, but what we know is customers go in and out. They drop, at, drop in at any point and they can drop out at any point. And what we're doing is, you know, if, if I'm a marketer supplying dozens and dozens of recs throughout the process and I'm getting close to the checkout process, instead of just kind of zipping my lip and letting the, the customer actually check out, 
I'm getting them to the point of almost converting and saying, hey, did you think about this? Or did you think about these add-on products or this alternative product or this unrelated product or things like that, where there's just so much going on at once that what I'm actually doing is reminding the customer how much more work can be done to research their actual purchase. So I'm just reminding them of how, mu how much more options there are, how many more you know, different choices they could or should exercise in this and how uneducated they are on this actual product or space that they're entering into. And so, of course, we wonder why, you know, in, in these, I remember seeing these stats and, you know, we've heard, they've changed a couple here and there over the years, but, you know, more than 90% of customers are abandoning their cart. Uh, and, and we as marketers say like, oh, what's, what's wrong here? Like, why are these customers so irrational? It's like, well, what are we doing that's making them act this way? What are we doing that's making them act irrationally that we're, that is our actual irrationality? A lot of the times it's that, I mean, it's, it's that glaring example of there's just too many recommendations, too much stimuli going on at once and we're scaring them off. So the two things I want to make sure I mentioned first is when you think, when you talk about like that consumer life cycle or the customer life cycle and how, you know, so many of us think about it as a, as a linear progression, which as you mentioned, is absolutely not. And uh, there's, there's one uh, client that we have that does a, a really nice job of testing everything. So they'll test, you know, their own data science recommendations and propensity modeling. And then they'll test Salesforce's AI and their propensity modeling and some of the Einstein capabilities that they have, and they'll compare them. And it's just, you know, it's, it's that, that phrase we always talk about of, you know, marketing is never done. It's just a constant iteration to figure out, you know, what works, what doesn't, you know, where is someone at? Because all we're doing is we're just trying to guess what is going to be that next best action. It's impossible to predict it. And the other piece of that too, is if you cannot report on those different elements, then it makes it really hard to show the value of these things. And that's what we really try to figure out or what are the key KPIs uh, or the ROI metrics that we're going to follow as we're going through these different campaigns um, or uh, these different strategies to make sure that we can look back at it and say, okay, you know, Einstein uh, had a 12% conversion rate, but our data, data science team had a 16% conversion rate. Is that enough for us to put more eggs into our own basket or do we continue down that path and, and so on and so forth? The other piece that you mentioned about like when there are all these different steps or pop-ups or things that you're going throughout that process. I was just thinking about this the other day. I am a very uh, easy to please pizza eater and I love Domino's pizza. So feel free to make fun of me for loving Domino's pizza. But the, the, the thing that I dislike about Domino's pizza is that as soon as I, I add something to my cart, so I go to, I'm going to get a crunchy thin crust with pepperoni, green pepper, and onion, and then I add it to my cart. And the first thing that does is it pops up and says, would you like to add extra cheese? And I already went through the process of what I wanted, and then it's telling me exactly what you said, and that's how I take it is, do you want to add extra cheese? Like, no, I don't want to add extra cheese. If I did, I would have already put it in there. And so it's just one more button for me to like X out of. Yeah, but, but thank then, you for the reminder of what I don't actually have. Yeah, exactly, exactly. And then I go to the uh, checkout and I click the checkout button 
and then three recommendations come up for you know breadsticks dessert or drinks and it's the same thing and and to me especially when i'm in a hurry it's just so many more things for me to go through and i'm sure there's a, a better way of doing it outside of the pop up right like you could have it you know at the at where the button is right so when i go to click the checkout at the button there's just a banner across the the, the um uh screen there but the i think the problem is is that pop-ups typically perform so well like the conversion rate on pop-ups whether it's for email opt-in or uh, adding something additional to your cart like with an additional recommendation historically they perform extremely well but what's the what's the value that you're providing out of that and i think that's the the moral of the story here if you're if you're going to add more choices if you're going to provide a consumer um, or a contact with additional elements what's the value that you're providing is it to your point cole telling them what they're missing out on or is it something that could actually make their experience better yeah the the, the conversion i mean it's 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 fishing with dynamite it's the conversions are so high on these pop-ups that you're basically saying like hey i'm going to steal away from the experience you're having as with one superseding message that's of the utmost importance is it really that important is there value being added by it is you know what is the customer receiving out of this is this the most important thing yeah they're going to get uh, some sort of reaction out of it but yeah a lot of the times it, it, it's robbing the rest of the, the choices and the rest of that experience. It better be super important to us. Well, thanks for going through this. This is really fun to go through. I'm excited for us to keep going through them. And I think to the earlier point around, you know, just that linear progression of the contact lifecycle as we think about tools like Journey Builder and how you can build out that linear progression I'm uh, anxious. We're going to do a podcast here in the, the coming weeks around the future of MarTech as well, and kind of what our predictions are for things like that, especially as they relate to, you know, the progression of the customer lifecycle and all those elements too. So that'll be great to dive into it as well as additional topics on in the cognitive clouds. So shifting to completely unrelated, thinking about the favorites, your favorite sitcoms. Do you have a all-time favorite sitcom character? Ooh, that's a tough one. I feel like you already have one teed up. I really, I really don't. I because I, I think it's just you know like anytime someone asks you, you know, what's your favorite this, I always think of like five or ten things. It's really hard to kind of narrow it down to one. Like I would immediately think of uh kramer and george from seinfeld mm -hmm. i would immediately think of uh lucille bluth from arrested development uh i i feel like if i do go with those types of characters like they're usually not like yeah i think to your point like they're not main characters they're off the beaten path a little bit and there, yeah, there's some sort of oddity to them that makes them that nostalgic. Like, like I was gonna say, like Kramer is one of the ones that stands out to me as well. Um, and it's you know, not because you can necessarily relate to him, not because there's you know some inherent qualities that are so admired or 
you know, it's just because he's so weird and funny and quirky. And like, it's something like that that makes it so odd that it stands out. It's almost like those, uh, like the, you know, the character actors where it's hard for them to break out of that. You know, like you could never see Michael Richards in anything else and not think of Kramer. Same thing with Jason Alexander and George Costanza. Yeah, the almost typecast because it was such a good fit. Yeah, which is like really cool and really sad at the same time. Like it stinks that Jason Alexander hasn't really had a whole, like as big of a role as he had in Seinfeld since Seinfeld. But at the same time, he doesn't because he had so much success on Seinfeld. So it's just, it's kind of this weird dichotomy, but the uh, like a couple other ones that I think of are Sam Malone from Cheers, basically every character in Golden Girls. I knew you were gonna say Golden Girls. <laughs> <laughs> I can't, I'm trying to think of something that's more recent. So that way we don't totally sound like we only watch TV from the eighties and nineties. <laughs> I mean, I don't, don't like, well, I, I was going to say Boy Meets World, but that's not, I mean, that was still late 90s, early yeah, 2000s. That's still, not, that's still not recent, but. Oh, golly. Yeah. They, they did a good job, I tell you, they did a good job on characters. Um, you know, I would say something like, I, I've, I've had this, I wouldn't necessarily put him in, in my top, but in the office, um, Kevin Malone has probably the, highest <laughs> ratio of funny lines to actual overall lines most of the things he says are just like one-off in the background but they're very funny and they're very fitting to just his character there's usually like a fat or a dumb joke in there for him you know but like he doesn't have much of a you know a, a front row presence in most of that cast so those those types of characters where it's like that oddity kind of doesn't really Somebody that you wouldn't make a main dish, but still is a great compliment to the rest of the show. Was Kevin the one that spilled the chili? Yes. Yeah, okay. Yeah, that episode was great. The, the only person I can think of that was like within the last 10 years would be Ron Swanson from Parks and Rec. Yeah, that's a great character. He's just, yeah, he's just, it's kind of like the George Costanza. Like the reason I love George Costanza is because he's so... He's so angry and miserable all the time. And it's kind of that way with Ron Swanson. Like he's so, he's just, he's just, there's no development of Ron Swanson, right? Like it's just, this is the character and that's who he is for the run of the show. Yeah. And every, every line or every reaction from him is expected, but it's exquisitely accurate to what it, what he is. Yeah, that's so true. It's, it's, you, you kind of have an idea of what he's going to say. And yet every time the delivery is great. It's still hilarious. So, well, anyway, thanks everybody for listening. Really appreciate it. As always, you can reach out to us at in the clouds at leftdigital.com. If you've got a topic or a guest that you think uh, we'd love talking to, feel free to let us know and we'll catch you next time.